Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Previously on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, me and Jess went to Suzhou for the weekend, taking in the atmosphere of the old city down Shangtung Street. Met a couple of people and got pretty drunk in the end. And under the clouds of a hangover in the midwinter sky, we emerged the following morning as tourists. Crossed the ancient city to Pingjiang Road, slotted in among large tourist groups, all following coloured flags strapped to tall poles. Their tour guides spoke quickly about local history through these tiny, crackling amplifiers. The voices were so efficient, loud, and croaking that I couldn't understand how anyone could tolerate it. Also knocking about were simply ordinary Chinese tourists snapping themselves with various snacks, as is their wont. They stood in front of the doors and took photos, perched on the bridge and took photos, cuddled with hubby, took photos, drank fruit tea and took photos. Ate candy floss and took photos. Got comfy on a rock and took photos there. Giggled with girlfriends, took photos, and plied selfie sticks and took photos. Some choreographed photo ops were a little more special though. Pingjiang Road is a go-to hotspot for couples to come after their wedding for the photo shoot. Often the bride wears a tight red dress and looks incredibly happy as the photographer shoots her with her new husband, who, for his part, looks incredibly patient. I had read a small, rather pretty book about Suzhou by David W. Ferguson called *In Red Linen Shoes*, in which a photo shows a young woman looking rather forlorn in the tight red dress known as the chipao. It's as famous a piece of Chinese clothing as it gets, and had its heyday in the fashionable world of Shanghai in the 1920s. The caption under this photo of the woman in the chipao reads, "Local people have kept their traditional customs and clothes." Really, this is about as true as the idea that Native Americans wear feathered headdresses while they do their weekly shop. It might be romantic to imagine these places which time has forgotten, but the reality is a girl walking past holding an ice cream cone with a pizza on top. From where I'm standing, the chipao represents not the hanging on of traditions, but the fascination that the Chinese have with their past. And in China, the past hasn't always been so happily embraced. Artifacts and traditions, which have been seen as unhelpful to the contemporary rulers, have often been destroyed, whether they were religious or cultural, alongside the burning of books to inhibit the spreading of bad ideas.、It、goes back to the first imperial dynasty, the Qin, and continues today in the digital censorship of information. Most egregiously, though, was the onslaught of the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution. In the name of the chairman. The politicized youths destroyed anything they could get their hands on that spoke of an older age, embarking on some sort of great cleansing. But here in Pingjiang Road, the communist gift shops sit next to the ones which sell the traditional Chinese fans, and you can buy Red Guard memorabilia and commie slogans printed on little money purses. I bought one which read "Follow the Party" for a friend back home, Dave. 
who always enjoys a good party. The red tourism of communist trinkets and posters sits quite comfortably alongside the Starbucks and the aggressively sold fried squids impaled on sticks. China has long given up pretending that their brand of socialism means shunning the crudest forms of capitalism. But in more recent years, red tourism has been ramped up both to cement the mythological ascendancy of the communist era and to foment nationalism as the great tug of war between China and the USA ramps up. There is also an earnest effort among some younger Chinese to revisit Mao and Marx as ideologies to get behind, in opposition to liberalism or consumerism, and also in opposition to the modern Chinese state's occasional nod to Marx and Mao as ideological forefathers. Xi Jinping is seen as more Maoist in the sense that he's fostered a kind of personality cult, and he rails against the Western world as Mao used to. But Mao was a full-blown ideologue, She's just a power-hungry megalomaniac. Mao's that too. But he was also a full-blown ideologue. Anyway, neo-Maoists look at the corruption in society and politics, the inequality and poor conditions of many workers, and they don't like what they see. Along with any form of political consciousness in China, this is not tolerated by the state. The tourism, though, the red tourism, well, that's superficial enough to be acceptable. Most famously, Mao's portrait remains on the gate of heavenly peace at the entrance to the imperial city in Beijing, near the tomb of the late dictator, where he remains embalmed against his wishes. Mao actually wanted to be cremated, but the authorities clearly decided that the physical specimen would serve their purposes better. Millions of people pass through every year to solemnly pay their respects to the corpse. Beyond the capital city, Numerous villages in China have been renovated with flags, slogans and murals celebrating China's struggle with imperialism, foreign and domestic, and the glorious victory for the people, which took place when Mao and his men painted the country red. The great helmsman's guiding hand and benevolent tutelage is depicted in paintings, statues and poems. Some of this is genuine nostalgia for a time before consumerism took over but most of it is packaged nicely in China's modern economy. Wuhan is home to a communist theme park, celebrating communist elders, values and achievements. Hunan, the province in which Mao entered the world, has plenty of Mao tourism, which is to be expected, I suppose. The city of Changsha has a 32-metre sculpture of the chairman's younger self carved into the rock, and his hometown of Shaoshan has a solid gold, but much smaller, Mao which people pray to, as one would a Buddha. Every year, millions of people make the pilgrimage to Mao's hometown. It's as close to a god as you can get here. A 36-metre-tall, gold-encrusted Mao was also erected nearby, but this was taken down shortly after going up. The local authorities cited the lack of planning permission, but one wonders if it was taken down because they noticed that it was ghastly. Look it up. Gold Mao Hunan. It's all the key words you need, but don't look directly at it without sunglasses. For all the Mao nostalgia, the most common face you're likely to see on Chinese communist propaganda is not Mao, but that of Lei Feng, semi-legendary hero of revolutionary China. <laughs> 
In the prototypical image, Lay peers out from beneath a warm woolen hat, clutching a machine gun. With his calm but steely gaze, he imbues the twin virtues of the revolution, modest selflessness and patriotic duty. Be like Lei Feng, love the party, love socialism, love the people, goes the tagline. Like many tales of modest heroes, Lei was an orphan. He was raised by the Communist Party and, through reading the teachings of Mao, found that a frugal life was a noble life. He aspired not to greatness or prestige, but to be one small but invaluable part of the great national juggernaut of a new China. Or, to use Lei's metaphor, to be the little screw that doesn't rust. In 1962, Lei died in a banal workplace incident at the age of 21. As a young member of a transportation unit, accounts of his service are sketchy, but in death Lei became the perfect tool for the rehabilitation of Mao's cult personality, after the setback of the Great Leap Forward that we've talked about so many times on this podcast, the famine-inducing centrally planned program to growth spurt China into the industrial age. After the Great Leap, Mao was at risk of becoming a tainted brand, but Lei Feng, even in death, was there to aid the chairman. While early propaganda campaigns focused on Lei's noble character traits, before long, propagandists, somewhat conveniently, managed to unearth parts of his diary, which expressed glowing admiration for Mao. Learn from Lei Feng, implored Mao approvingly in scrappy calligraphy, and the diaries of Lei were added to the national curriculum. Lei's diaries are so gushingly virtuous, his deeds so valiantly modest and selfless, his belief in the cause so unswerving, that it's hard to take the guy seriously. His tales have him giving poor neighbours his wages, washing his comrades' feet after the long march, serving tea to the recruits. The posters show him driving trucks or moving bricks, or reading, reading and reading those little red books. The suspension of disbelief is pushed to the limit, and modern Chinese society takes it all with a pinch of salt. But, like Robin Hood, Lei Feng is an interesting tool in understanding how social values have changed in this morally unanchored country. How to live the Huo Lei Feng, or the Lei Feng life, in a competitive country where ruthlessness, not selflessness, is the key to getting on. How to promote allegiance to the party in an increasingly individualistic and well-educated society in which people no longer blindly believe in what they're told. How to maintain the glorious myth of revolution without giving people the unhelpful ideas of, well, revolution. And indeed, recently, during the COVID pandemic in particular, we've had examples of the people challenging the authorities, and they don't just bemoan the lockdowns. They call for the freedom of speech, which enables them to bemoan the lockdowns, and all the other things they may want to bemoan. In keeping with the times, Lei Feng's messages have changed. Nowadays, you might find him promoting good health or innumerable small businesses. Modern China has refashioned this figure of altruism as a kitsch addition to red tourism. There's one other thing that all tourists do in Suzhou. They visit the gardens. Suzhou's gardens are world famous, designated UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And they have influenced garden designs in China and beyond. They are what gardens are when gardens become art. 
dating back a thousand years or so. These gardens express a metaphysical connection with nature, a way of designing the environment in harmony with human beings. The mountains and water of classical Chinese paintings and the wind-water feng shui of home designs are all expressions of this harmonious engagement between people and nature. Jess and I were interested to see how harmoniously we could slot into this tempered landscape. But first we had to get into one. The humble administrator's garden was our garden of choice, partly because the name conjures up such a pleasant image, but also because it's the daddy of Suzhou's gardens. They were built over the ages by China's Renaissance men, men who wrote poetry, administrated local government offices, and dabbled in horticulture. Or, as in the case of one former resident, Li Xiaocheng, commander of the Taiping Rebellion, went on marauding killing sprees. Revisit the Taiping Rebellion in episode 24, Sunrise in Nanjing, for a recap on that little episode. There was the typical bustle outside the entrance, and we queued for tickets, which were 90 RMB each. That's almost a tenner. Let loose inside, we first had to battle past the tour guides offering themselves up for a further fee. We observed some in action, the breakneck delivery of information, the stomping on pebble pathways, the competition with other tour guides. The garden was an oasis in the ancient city sheltered from any weather that might disturb the calm trees and the so-called scholar's rocks on the little hills. These rocks come from Tai Lake and other nearby lakes, and are prized for their lack of uniformity, their expressive jaggedness. They really do have quite a character. Everything within this serene scene is reflected in the pools as they, the trees, rocks and pathways, tumble down little man-made hills away from idyllic pavilions. It all worked together to create a honed nature-culture compromise, where one works to bring out the best of the other. But there were hundreds of people in here, and nature was putting up an impressive but ultimately doomed fight against culture. Noisy culture. The pools and trees and quaint structures, pavilions with names like the Sea Very Far Pavilion, the Sweet Smelling Rice Pavilion, and the Smell of the Rain Pavilion, urged us to take a moment to experience the physical presence of the surroundings, but were drowned out by the sword-like swishing of selfie sticks and the guffaws of those trying to balance on rocks for that picturesque photo. It was hard to find someone who wasn't taking a photo or positioning themselves for a photo. A million Chinese bureaucrats could spend a lifetime looking over these photos, and perhaps somewhere near Beijing they were. Despite being advised that the garden was a four-hour trip, we did it in less than one. Back out on the road, we stopped to eat some bread on the pavement. A few pedestrians found this amusing. As we ate, a coach dropped off a whole load of tourists, making a traffic jam in the process. An orchestra of honking ensued, led by the city bus, whose driver simply sat back, applied pressure to the horn, and waited. Jess went to the Bookworm, a cafe and bookshop and sometime events venue, and I roamed the old city a little more. First I went to Suzhou Museum, designed by a local man turned international architect, I.M. Pei. It opened in 2006 and is a splendid bit of architecture which takes traditional Chinese forms and makes it jaggedly modern. 
It sits perfectly in Suzhou's old town, with its white and brown palette, its slopes and slants and nooks and crannies. Among the relics, like the 7,000-year-old Zeng rice steamer and the Chinese calligraphy scrawled on rice paper, is one of Xu Beihong's famous horse paintings, and the Pearl Pillar, an ornate Buddhist sculpture discovered by some boys in an abandoned Suzhou pagoda. There's no prosperous Suzhou, Xu Yang's 18th century day in the life of the city, on a scroll. But modern painter Zhou Wenyong depicts a romantic small-town life here. It's easy to see how Suzhou's self-image is perpetuated by the myths it indulges in, to connect itself to the simplicities of the past, just as it races into the future. We had planned to take the bus at Suzhou North Station at 4.30. Jess was ahead and had remarkably made it on time. Punctuality is not my forte. On the phone, I told Jess to get the bus if I didn't make it on time. But if she could delay the driver, then do it. A call came through as I was biting my nails on the subway, knowing deep in my heart that I'd fucked it and I was going to have to take a taxi back to Chongshu. Where are you? She said. Still on the subway. I think I may have missed it. I'm sure he'll wait, don't worry. Why would he wait for me? Jess paused. I don't know, she said, and then concluded with the fact of the matter. You're not here yet. The subway was inching north, above ground now. A grey Jiangsu day. When the nukes fall, I thought, and that cloud is rushing towards us, at least Jess will be there to tell you it'll all be okay. We spoke a little more and I asked her to make sure she's standing beside the right bus. What's the name of where we're going? She asked. Li Gong University, I said. Li Gong Da Xue. Ding Dong Dan I heard her parroting to the driver, from whom I could hear only the unmistakable sounds of impatience. We were zipping along now, past paddy fields and tumble-down shacks and crisscross canals with tiny stone bridges crossing them. The late winter sky was beginning to darken and I longed to avoid the expense and the haggle. Oh, the nightmare of the haggle in a broken second language. With the taxi driver who doesn't care either way whether I get home or not. I'm almost there, I yelled down the phone. Peng yo, peng yo, deng yixia, deng yixia. Friend, friend, wait, wait. A confused muffle rang out the other end as Jess attempted to delay the driver. I bombed off the train, up the escalator, across a parking lot, and ran in front of the bus as it was making to leave. Jess, the sweetheart, hadn't got on. She'd waited for me, resigning herself to going down together. But we'd done it. Teamwork, bad Chinese, and Jess. Eyes scrunched and palms out. A rock in the road stopping the bus leaving the lot. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, it's history time. One of the more curious parts of the Cold War was the split between Communist Russia and Communist China. Can't these lefties just get on? Let's find out what went wrong.